Welcome back to E-Conversations with Nave, the official podcast for the National Association for Business Economics and your one-stop shop for catching up on the latest in business economics on the go. Today's podcast is the webinar replay from the April 27th webinar, Roadmap to Net Zero, Charting U.S. Competitiveness Across Clean Energy Sources. Over the next hour, our panel will take the audience through Third Way and Breakthrough Energy's recently commissioned study of U.S. competitiveness across 10 clean energy technologies. The session is moderated by Nekabari Goka, Principal of Corporate Strategy at Exelon and Co-Chair of NAEP's Climate Finance Roundtable. Neka, take it away. Sure. So, uh, Caitlin, first, thanks. Uh, you know, thanks for that introduction. Uh, so, as Caitlin mentioned, my name is Nekabari Goka. Uh, I serve as a principal on a corporate strategy team at Exelon Utilities, uh, which is uh, one of the largest pure play transmission and distribution utility companies in the U.S. Um, and in addition to that, I serve as a co-chair for the Climate Change uh, Economics and Finance Roundtable here at the National Association of Business Economics. Uh, as Caitlin mentioned, we have a number of uh, very, very sort of interesting programs coming up here in the sort of the back half of the year. So uh, if you're not a NAID member, uh, please, uh, you know, sort of do what's necessary to do that and become one. And we look forward to seeing you in continued events moving forward. Um, so as uh, Caitlin mentioned, today's uh, the, the, the title of today's discussion is Roadmap to Net Zero, Charting U.S. Competitiveness Across Clean Energy Sources. And um, uh, very, very excited to introduce uh, our two esteemed uh, panelists uh, for today's uh, discussion. Um, and so uh, I guess David and, and Ellen, if you're if you're there to go ahead and come off. Yeah, exactly. Great. So there's one. And there's a second. So um, I will uh, leave it, uh, introduce or leave it to the panelists to introduce uh, themselves here. Uh, I think we have um, some great slides, I think, to walk you all through. And then from there, we will continue on with a number of, uh, call it uh, pre-designed questions, uh, you know, I have on, on my end from the moderator. But then, uh, as, as Caitlin mentioned, we do have the chat box open as well. So if you have any questions, uh, please feel free to drop them directly in the chat box, and we'll make sure to integrate them in the conversation. Uh, so with that, uh, I'll turn it over uh, to Ellen and, uh, and David for introduction. And I guess we can go ahead and get started with the presentation from there. So uh, Ellen, you wanna go ahead? Great, thank you so much, Nika, I really appreciate it. My name is Ellen Hughes-Cromwick. I'm Senior Resident Fellow for the Climate and Energy Program at Third Way. And we are really doing a lot of research analysis and policy uh, recommendations with respect to this transition to clean energy. It's very uh, just wonderful to be here today to talk to you about our um, work that we have been doing. And I think, um, Caitlin, if you wanna start the deck and then we'll turn it over to David after I finish the first part and he can introduce uh, himself as well, but uh, let's go to the next slide. And uh, first off, I just wanna tell you that uh, this work I think is very much evidence-based driven. We've actually commissioned a study we being third way and breakthrough energy to look at 10 different clean energy technologies. And here you can see the 10 that were studied. And uh, what we learned from the deep dives in these clean techs is that they represent over $130 trillion of market value through 2050 and will also spur millions of job new jobs in the economy. Next slide, please. 
The study approach is pathbreaking. In fact, if anybody on the line has seen another study out there that has done this, we would be very interested, but we scoured and had not really found any uh, additional research that actually does point one here, which we broke down each clean technology into nine value chain segments. And so this was done by a team of researchers at the Boston Consulting Group. They then assessed the market potential, competitiveness, and also job creation in each of those value chain segments. They used the International Energy Agency scenarios for the period 2020 to 2050. And then they ranked the value chain segments on competitiveness and market size scales. And then finally, uh, as I turn it over to David in a minute, he's gonna talk about additional work that was done to assess the impact of recent legislation on US leadership across these clean technologies. Next slide. Here's an example of the value chain segments or supply chain segments for each of the technologies. So essentially these are many different industries embodied in each one of these technologies running from, as you can see on the left, raw material inputs all the way over to the right, which are more of the service or higher value added um, activities around support services and offtake. Next slide. Just to give you an example of one clean tech, here is what we found for low carbon hydrogen. The US has competitive strength across four of these uh, value chain segments. And what you see in the callout boxes represents the market value over that cumulative 2020 to 2050 period, as well as the average jobs per year that will be created associated with that value chain segment. So here you can see substantial market value, um, especially as you can see on offtake at $2.6 trillion, but also very sizable job gains across these four clean energy uh, technology value chain segments for low carbon hydrogen. Next slide, please. And for clean steel, you can see here in terms of sales, substantial value, 5.4 trillion and over 30,000 jobs per year. Next slide. On electric vehicles, the study found substantial gains across these four value chain segments. As you can see on the left-hand side, the um, ability to build a competitive advantage in powertrain and battery manufacturing, over $4 trillion of market activity, 35,000 jobs per year. And as you can see, kind of circling over here to the right in after sales services, over 9 trillion and 81,000 jobs per year. This turned out to be uh, because in fact, we have a relatively mature automotive industry here in the US, it is prime for a conversion to uh, electric vehicles. Next slide. I also think this is one of the hallmarks of the study. As the BCG team assessed 
durable competitive advantage, they used these seven indicators and developed a qualitative assessment, almost a kind of a red, yellow, green assessment, not just looking at intellectual property, number of patents, but also digging down into the research and technical leadership that we have, again, at the value chain segment level, not the total technology level. They looked at operational costs, demand and supply side policies, whether or not uh, the market had a, had a certain level of, of maturity and also the regulatory environment and infrastructure. Again, using these seven indicators, BCG uh, team, the BCG study team was able to assess the uh, degree of quote unquote durable competitive advantage. Next slide. And here are some of the results. I know this is a bit of an eye chart, but we are going to make these slides um, accessible and available to you. But what um, this shows is the three by three matrix with competitive advantage running on the y-axis and market potential running on the x-axis. So that if we go up the scale on y, the top three boxes would represent the highest potential and existing uh, durable competitive advantage. While um, if you go to the far right on the x-axis, that represents that last column would represent the highest market value. And here you see, for example, purple circles in the top right box. And that really represents a substantial competitive advantage in EVs. Across three of the important value chain segments, manufacturing, software development, and after sale services. But note that all of these dark green and light green boxes that are called out have value chain segments that are ranked as either the ability to build a competitive advantage, those would be the light green, or the US already has an existing durable competitive advantage, that would be the dark green. Here you can see in the red bubbles, uh, substantial competitive advantage across direct air capture value chain segments, in the blue bubbles, those would represent key value chain segments where the US has a competitive advantage or the ability to build uh, for hydrogen. Next slide. This represents the last four clean energy technologies that the BCG team studied and that we examined. This includes solar, offshore wind, carbon capture utilization and storage, as well as geothermal. Again, same methodology, ranking the competitive advantage and market size for each of the value chain segments. And here you can see eight value chain segments in the dark green and light green boxes that uh, really, uh, really do show that we have the ability to compete. Next slide, please. Just to sum up, before I turn it over to David, we have $130 trillion of total market value for the domestic market, about 14 trillion, half a trillion dollars of export potential. And if we are on a net zero scenario path, that would represent 30 gigatons of carbon abatement. Next slide. 
The job gains are quite substantial across many of these value chain segments. And not only that, it's that some of the gains are in um, jobs that uh, not high school diploma workers can qualify for, which is absolutely critical. And here that light green part of the bar represents workers that could um, obtain those jobs with a high school diploma. Many of those in the EV uh, value chain segments, but note also in hydrogen, as well as long duration energy storage and in DAC. So there are um, substantial job gains. The average job duration fairly high for many of these value chain segments in excess of 10 years and good paying salaries. And now it's really my honor to turn the podium over to John, uh, uh, to David Palella, who is at Breakthrough Energy. David. Thank you, Ellen. <clears throat> and uh, I'm sure we could just uh, stop the presentation there, uh, given how much material you just shared. Um, but uh, I have uh, plenty more to walk through uh, for you all here. So thanks for attending this. Um, and I'm David Paolella. I am a manager on the US policy team at Breakthrough Energy, where I lead our research and analysis. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Breakthrough Energy, we're a, a network of organizations founded by Bill Gates in 2015, uh, really focusing on accelerating the clean energy transition and uh, helping the world achieve net zero emissions by 2050. Uh, so the network, Breakthrough Energy Network, includes uh, organizations like Breakthrough Energy Ventures, uh, Breakthrough Energy Catalyst, and Breakthrough Energy Fellows. And uh, through the combination of those efforts, we use investment vehicles, philanthropic programs, policy advocacy, where I sit, uh, and other means to scale uh, the technologies the world needs uh, to meet its climate goals. Um, and what I'm walking through here is, I mean, with what Ellen shared is uh, the competitiveness study focusing on where economic opportunity lies for the U.S. across the value chains for these 10 technologies that we need to achieve uh, net zero emissions globally. And what I'm sharing here is the follow-on to that, which recaps what we achieved uh, uh, based on uh, recent legislation over the past few years that had significant energy, energy provisions, energy and climate provisions. So this includes the um, I think you can go to the next slide now, um, please. Thank you. Uh, so this, this assessment covers the Energy Act of 2020, um, the Chips and Science Act, the infrastructure, bipartisan infrastructure law, uh, and the Inflation Reduction Act. And the goal here uh, with this work was really to illustrate how these four laws work together um, by pro providing targeted support across uh, the different parts of the technology lifecycle and supply chain for each of the technologies here. And um, that targeted support across all those different areas is uh, a key theme here because we have to scale many of these technologies faster um, than we're typically able to do. And in some cases, you know, record pace of deployment uh, and development for some of these technologies to meet our goals. Slide, please. Into uh, 
an example of the tech by tech analysis because the way this assessment is laid out, we have one um, presentation for each of the technologies that walks through the impacts of recent legislation. But we also have uh, one analysis that synthesizes some of the, the takeaways uh, across technologies. And so I'm gonna show a few slides from that uh, piece of the work too as an introduction. Um, so, oh yeah, we can, uh, we can stay there. <laughs> uh, so this slide from the, the cross-technology analysis uh, really shows how the combination of recent legislation brings down the costs of a lot of, uh, in this case, you know, clean electricity technologies. Um, in many cases, beyond uh, the uh, making them cost competitive with incumbent technologies, and uh, you can see here the example is natural gas um, power plant. And so, on a pure economic basis. Um, a lot of these technologies are, are really now in the money. Uh, next slide, please. And uh, as you can see on this slide, the impact of that is a lot of deployment. Um, and this is both for more mature technologies like you know, solar and wind, um, but also things like direct air capture and clean hydrogen. And I'll draw your attention to, to those two because you'll, you'll see that uh, the increases in deployment as a result of recent legislation that BCG estimated are really significant. And um, you know, if you look closely, you'll see, well, it's because it start, they start from you know, near zero levels of deployment. Today, these are nascent industries. Um, and if you look through just 2030, uh, we probably won't see a lot of big emissions impacts uh, or emissions reductions impacts from those technologies. But the goal here is really to accelerate deployment of technologies that are uh, have higher green premiums that we'll need in the long run uh, for deep decarbonization to truly get us to net zero emissions, especially in the post 2030 decades. Um, so this is one of the, the huge uh, successes of the legislation is to set us up for this kind of impact. Next slide, please. Um, so, of course, uh, these impacts are not um, guaranteed to happen. <laughs> and um, they're really dependent on effective implementation of the laws. And that's not uh, easy. Uh, we identified six issues that really need attention, in some cases, um, through uh, you know, smart implementation in some cases could be additional policy that's needed. So these things range from siting and permitting. You know, it really takes a long time to build energy infrastructure to site um, permit and build energy infrastructure in the US. Um, we have a, an aging grid that is in need of upgrades and expansion. Uh, if we really wanna take advantage of the impacts for uh, clean electricity, um, we have to focus there. Um, of course, in these laws, there's also really a focus on, um, on uh, supporting domestic manufacturing for a lot of these technologies. Uh, it's not easy to build up supply chains and that takes time. And so figuring out how to address those bottlenecks, especially when they're related to things like critical materials and minerals, um, that's, a, that's a key area that we need to focus on. Uh, workforce is obviously a big one. Um, a lot of jobs uh, 
could come from this, but that also will mean that many jobs will uh, uh, be reliant on our ability to provide the, the requisite training um, to actually uh, do those jobs. So that's another area where um, we really need to focus and be successful to get the uh, full upside of this, um, this legislation. Next slide, please. So um, those non-cost non barriers that I walked through, BCG found that they really have uh, some big implica implications for what we could achieve. And you know, there's a range of outcomes uh, what we could achieve from this legislation. So BCG estimated that timely implementation by addressing many of those barriers could unlock three times as much private investment uh, and up to a trillion dollars in, uh, in private investment over the next uh, almost 10 years. Um, so that's, that's really critical for us to achieve scale of impact. You know, we, we need to get the private sector involved at a really large scale um, to transform the energy system and uh, addressing those barriers that listed uh, before um, is sort of our next big challenge. Next slide, please. So in the last section of the presentation, I mentioned that there, uh, there's an analysis specific to each technology that you can find if you dig into our materials on our website. Um, and I'm gonna give you, uh, in lieu of going one by one through each of the 10 technologies, uh, which um, would be too much for the time we have, I'm just gonna give you one of my favorite examples, which is clean hydrogen. And just to start and give you some context, uh, I'm sure many of you know that we really need uh, to scale up clean hydrogen at a, a fast pace to achieve our climate goals, both in the US and uh, globally. And if you look at the US Department of Energy goals for clean hydrogen, they're pretty ambitious. Uh, 2030, 10 million metric tons per year uh, in the US. So that's, that's a, any clean hydrogen technology. So it could be electrolytic hydrogen or uh, other sources. Um, but 10 million metric tons is how much uh, emitting hydrogen we produce. And you know, that's a mature industry that has taken a long time to build up and be developed. So achieving that level of scale with clean technologies in uh, under a decade is a big challenge um, but also one that we need to attack with all of our um, efforts here. So uh, the chart on the left puts that uh, goal in context. Um, and you can look at the performance of wind and solar in the US in its best years. Um, and this is some, some data that uh, one of our partners, Rhodium Group, put together. Uh, and you can see that uh, if electrolysis were deployed in the US um, at a level of 150% annual growth over the next eight years, uh, that would be well faster than we were able to scale up solar and wind. Um, and that would get us to about 3 million metric tons of hydrogen per year in 2030. Um, so that's short of the goal, um, but even that would be uh, a pretty miraculous scale up uh, in the absence of uh, any sophisticated policy. But thankfully, we 
really put together uh, a pretty sophisticated and comprehensive set of uh, incentives and supports for this industry that is going to help us scale this up faster than you know we typically are able to do for other technologies. So the next slide um, provides the last, last bit of context here. Uh, you'll see that when um, our goal is to scale up uh, technologies quickly, uh, well, it's first of all, it's really hard to do. And the examples of uh, fast levels of deployment, you know, usually it happens for things like um, uh, things where like the military is involved or things where like the technologies can diffuse really quickly like the internet or things uh, like the COVID-19 vaccines where you had really coordinated support on the supply side, guaranteed offtake on the demand side. Um, and that's really a story uh, that, that's the recipe for success of um, rapid scale of technologies that we've seen historically. But even in those cases, um, achieving you know, the level of growth, uh, like 150% annual growth, like we saw in the last slide, is pretty hard to achieve and unprecedented in many cases. Only a few cases here um, uh, were, were found to reach that level of growth. Um, and all of these uh, examples here really relied on policy supporting uh, those technologies across the uh, supply chain and across the technology lifecycle. Uh, next slide, please. So for each technology, we actually mapped the policies to the supply chain and, and technology lifecycle here uh, from the four big uh, pieces of legislation. Uh, so you can really start to see how we're doing just what we need to do to achieve unprecedented growth. Um, so that's focusing on, um, you know, end-to-end -end, uh, needs here uh, for a nascent technology like clean hydrogen. Uh, so we have tax credits for manufacturing that can help with electrolyzer um, production in the U.S. We have funding for um, further research and development of new clean hydrogen technologies. We have a really robust focus on infrastructure, enabling infrastructure, which is critical. Um, and that's through the bipartisan infrastructure law. The hydrogen hubs program provides $8 billion for uh, regional hydrogen hubs. So this is gonna focus on production, transport, storage, and use um, to really help demonstrate the technologies and help them in their early stages. Uh, and then we of course have the big uh, production tax credit for hydrogen that helps to make um, otherwise expensive production of electrolytic hydrogen and other forms of clean hydrogen much cheaper. Um, so together, uh, these policies are really starting to form a sophisticated strategy uh, that can help us um, achieve uh, really rapid growth in the industry. Next slide, please. And uh, here you can see some of the uh, estimated impacts of the policies for uh, clean hydrogen. Um, so on the left side, you can see that not only does uh, the uh, production tax credit, for example, decrease uh, the cost of hydrogen today, um, but it also through the deployment that that will drive will um, 
help provide technology learning that can bring down the intrinsic cost of that technology in the long run so that we can uh, keep it going once the subsidy either is scaled back or removed in the long run. And then two, uh, on the, the right-hand side, we can see in the short term, you know, this uh, could really have a massive impact on deployment through 2030. BCG estimated that there was really not going to be a whole lot of deployment of a low carbon hydrogen over the next few years in the absence of policy. Um, and so together, these policies could drive 20 to 35x uh, deployment of hydrogen in the US, um, really moving us toward achieving our longer term goals in the US. Uh, if, you, if you look at the 2040 and 2050 numbers here, they actually are getting pretty close to the DOE goals. Next slide, please. Um, and just to, to begin wrapping up here, uh, each of the deep dives into the technologies provides some, some high level takeaways on the economic impact um, because it, it really could be significant. Uh, here, there's um, a $50 billion increase in the uh, market size for clean hydrogen through 2030. I think that includes like a $25 billion increase in capital investments um, across the value chain for that technology. So really big impact and uh, also um, tens of thousands of jobs along with that. Next slide, please. And just sort of a, to provide you a little bit of a, a forward looking um, view, the all this support for hydrogen is really changing the game and unlocking uh, lots of potential applications that can support decarbonization. Uh, you'll see some of them laid out here in a bit of an illustrative way. Um, but uh, one critical challenge is in uh, potential gap to focus on going forward is, is really making sure that if we make production um, much more affordable, but we don't have uh, robust demand uh, that can also be committed to in the long term to provide certainty. It's going to be a challenge to have that clean hydrogen be taken up on the demand side. Um, and we do have some policies to help there, but there's a lot more work to do. And um, there's also a lot of complexity in thinking through where can we take a, a constrained resource like clean hydrogen and apply it uh, to get the most decarbonization value. Um, so lots more to do there, um, but I will wrap up with that and looking forward to taking questions. Great. So, um, you know, to Ellen and David, let me first say thanks. I think that provided us with a, a great overview. I think sometimes the challenge with taking a very, very long and, uh, sort of detailed report is being able to distill it down in a manner that is uh, digestible and, and at the same time, very interesting. I think that both of you did a great job of doing that. Um, David, I think you had, you'd laid it out perfectly, right? In terms of sort of addressing or, or really making uh, sort of incremental change with respect to this energy transition, it's gonna represent a combination of not only the technology piece, but then also sort of solving for some of the legislative, uh, regulatory environment, um, you know, issues that I think contribute to, to us moving, uh, you know, forward here. So, so I think that was a certainly a salient point. So um, as you've been talking, there have been lots of discussions, I think, and, and questions, great questions being uh, dropped in the chat. 
Um, so uh, for those who are in the audience, please continue to drop those questions in the chat as we, uh, I guess, move to the question and answer section of uh, you know of the of today's discussion. So so Ellen, I'll uh, I'll, I'll I'll throw this one your way first. Um, so uh, this question, you know, talks about I think we talked about the competitiveness of the technologies themselves, and so the question then becomes. Um, you know, in determining some of the competitiveness of the specific technologies out to 2030, um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the assumptions that are made through the report about the technological advances that are made by competitors? So that is not only the technology itself, but but those you know other market actors that that will act as competitors or purveyors of different types of these tech, different tech, types of technologies through time. Yeah, thanks for that question. And I, yeah, I did see that in the Q&A. Absolutely, and in order to assess competitiveness, it's a relative term. We can't, we can't identify or define competitiveness in an absolute sense. And so therefore the team had to really dig down. And that's why I, I wanna emphasize with the multiple workshop, weekly workshops we had to go through the data, we looked um, specifically at who are the major competitors today who were likely to have the resources to undertake additional investments to advance their technology uh, uh, competitiveness. And, and so there was a, an attempt to look at this across countries, not just saying, you know, what, what can the US do without looking at where other competitors are and therefore, if you think about it, in the study, there were 90, that is nine zero value chain segments, 10 clean techs times nine value chain segments for each tech, so they're 90. And you can see in those dark green and light green boxes that I showed you in terms of the results, you know, we had about less than, less than a quarter of the value chain segments where um, they assess the U.S. to have the ability to achieve a competitive advantage, or we had a durable competitive advantage already. So the the comparisons were uh, were really eye opening in terms of you know not saying we are not going to have an absolute advantage across all value chain segments across all clean techs. I mean, this really demonstrated areas where we could get more bang for the buck if we emphasize and reinforce the com inherent competitiveness that already exists. Sure, yeah, great uh, great response there. Yeah, I think as you laid out, it's not only the technologies, but you, know, you multiply that times the use cases and we have a number of things to, to consider to try to determine where the competitive advantage lies. Um, so sticking with the theme of competitive advantage, um, you know, David, uh, naturally, I think you spent a lot of time talking about uh, green hydrogen. And so um, I guess a question that, that was sort of derived from the chat here is if you could follow up about what your perspectives are of or some of the competitive advantages uh, you know, that we may have as it relates to the development of, uh, of, of green hydrogen here through time. Sure, yeah, thank you for that question. Um, and I think uh, I would also love to get Ellen's perspective on this afterward, but uh, I mean, one of the big things uh, you can sort of break down hydrogen. There are, um, this is a little bit of a simplification, but the two big categories are electrolytic hydrogen and hydrogen produced uh, from fossil fuels with carbon capture. Um, so, you know, the, the competitive advantages there are quite different um, for those two different pathways. 
for electrolytic hydrogen, the key really is to have plentiful renewables at a low cost. And along with that, you really need um, a robust uh, in investment in the transmission grid. Um, and uh, we kind of got one part of that. And the other part where we still have a lot more work to do, uh, but together those two things really allow for uh, much lower cost uh, electrolytic hydrogen in the, in the long run. So we definitely have the resources to do that, um, but we stu still do need to tackle that uh, transmission um, constraint. Uh, and then for, um, for fossil derived hydrogen with carbon capture, we of course have a, um, a very, uh, a lot of expertise from the oil and gas industry, um, both on understanding how uh, to capture the carbon, but also to transport and store it. Um, so that's a, a critical piece of expertise that could be applied um, to that pathway as well. Before going to the, so David, thanks for that answer. Ellen, do you wanna maybe provide some thoughts on that before going to the next question? No, I, I, think, I think he captured it well. It's really important to see that we do have the ability to, to build this advantage, but also recognizing that uh, some of our, um, some of the Asian countries, you know, really do have a competitive advantage in producing low cost electrolyzers. So we know that, um, you know, this is not a level playing field uh, yet. We. Um, rightfully so, put um, significant policy in place to endorse and, and lead to what looks to be a much more substantial deployment. Again, to get out, to think about, you know, what are the long-term goals here? And that, you know, again, we can't squeeze everything into the next year. I, I see a lot of, you know, discussion, well, couldn't we just get this all done? Tomorrow, this is a this is kind of a thirty-year proposition, but in order to get to that point mid-century, I think as David rightly pointed out, you know we have to start in these investments now so that they start delivering results as we get into the twenty thirties and twenty forties. Certainly agreed. Yes, I, I think. Um... You know, this is, you know, we talk about uh, whether or not this is an energy transition, whether or not this is an energy transformation, and and either one of the T words, uh, I think, indicates a, a difficult and, and sometimes long process, no matter how you cut it. So, so to the point about making some of those investments now for a 20 to 30 year type of environment, I think that's important. Um, so this next question is for both of you, and it stems, I think, from a comment that David made with respect to renewable based um, you know, sort of hydrogen development. Um, jokingly, we often say in the, um, you know, in the distribution and transmission distribution utility business that there's no transition without transmission. Uh, and, you know, as you think about uh, the need for the development of large transmission-based infrastructure to bring in um, sort of the benefits of some of these clean energy technologies. And so that's just one risk area. So I guess my question to both of you is, if transmission has already been identified as a, as a risk area, what are you know some of your thoughts on some of the other major risks associated with the energy transition? And um, you know, sort of the part B of that question is, you know, what guidance do you think that Congress, um, the administration, uh, regulatory agencies and bodies can do to help mitigate that risk as we uh, you know sort of uh, approach some of these uh, year targets for many of our climate change focused objectives? 
So either that one is to to either one of you to ju to to jump in first. Uh, well, I'll I'll kick it off. I think it's an excellent question, and we know transitions are messy. Uh, you know, having worked in the private sector, I know what it's like to make a tech transition. You know, from one base to the next, it requires substantial effort and strategy. And I do think that one of the beauties of the legislation that has been passed was the way that the science helped inform the different provisions in the legislation. And much as you know, we we know anything is has a has kind of a a. Can, I guess I should say has a life of its own or can take on a life of its own. I'm very impressed by the way that the science helped inform the different provisions. Um, you know, again, we need as a nation to be competitive and to grow so that we can work and collaborate with our trading partners to expand these industries and these technologies. And um, if we do that, and as, as we have done historically in the US, I mean, we are known for being you know, great competitors. So if we do that, as we have done in the past, we will hopefully minimize the risks associated with the transition. But you know, those risks are there. We know that we don't have a carbon pricing mechanism now, so we have a lot of holes to fill. We know that we have, um, you know, certain energy markets that are guided by cartels. So we, we recognize all of these realities, but I think our companies in the U.S., what this study shows is that they're well positioned to not only, um, you know, use the provisions in the legislation, but to recognize these are great market opportunities. The uh, growth and market value is substantial. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Great points there, David. Uh, you know, you want to provide some 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 thought. You you are you are lighting up in in response. I think as Ellen was going through her responses. So so yeah. Look, well, I mean, this is a knowledge question. we need, right? So it's such a great question, and of course, we're always thinking deeply about the risks um, of the transition and the risks of not transitioning. Um, so there are many ways you can look at it, and I think we. We walk through some of them uh, in the presentation, and there's there's more material in um, the presentation on our website if you go dig dig deeper into it. Um, but I, I also wanted to suggest a, an expansion of the framing of, of the the idea of of the risks of the transition because I think another interesting way of thinking about it is like we just achieved a lot domestically, um, but we will miss a massive opportunity globally if we don't really think hard about how to take some of the cost reductions and technology advancements uh, that we will make in the US as a result of all of this legislation and really scale that abroad uh, and make sure that those technologies are accessible around the world and can really help us move toward achieving our global goals because that's the whole point here uh, and we fail if we don't do that and we don't um, take advantage, advantage of the, the, uh, the full opportunity if we don't address that as well. And I think that's a huge area for a lot more thinking, a lot more policy uh, to really focus on how to scale some of these advances abroad. Um, 
so yeah, that's uh, that's one thought. And then I think it, as Ellen um, very rightly pointed out, we really took an incentive-based approach here. Um, but in the long run, we probably will need uh, some clear signals for industries uh, to invest in much longer term kind of capital transformation projects uh, shifting toward lower carbon um, product production uh, technologies and pathways. Uh, so things like a, a um, clean product standard uh, could be really helpful in that regard. And it will thankfully be a lot cheaper to take steps like that with the incentives that we have now in place. Um, but there's definitely more work to do. Excellent. Okay. Well, um, so what we'll do is, uh, you know, we've, again, I'm, I'm sort of you know, getting in a number of these questions here from the chat. So we're trying to get through as many of these as quickly as we can. Um, so a question has come up specifically, and, and I think, you know, sometimes when we talk about some of these technologies that scale fastest, I think there is a natural tendency to look at those technologies that you can visibly see and, and sort of assume that those will be the ones that will scale the fastest. I think the one that I'm thinking about more directly is electric vehicles, um, you know, whether through marketing, whether through sort of just kind of the ease of, of seeing the impacts. I think EVs is one of those areas that a lot of folks have started to pay attention to, uh, particularly over the last you know, 10 years or so. And so, you know, my question is, is sort of, you know, how are you all sort of thinking about, I think, the, the full value chain, if you will, aspects associated with electric vehicle deployment. So on one sense, there is the value of electric vehicles from a carbon mitigation perspective in terms of GHD reductions from tailpipe emissions. However, um, you know, the batteries are not made of air. Uh, the batteries are made from minerals that must be mined. And so, you know, so my question then becomes, and this is from the chat, how do you sort of square the balance, if you will, between um, kind of the ends of the EVs justifying the means associated with, with mining the materials that are necessary to deliver the batteries themselves. Yes, and we did actually dig into uh, estimates of life cycle emissions for EVs. Um, I have posted on our website some information and studies that we have examined to understand that life cycle emission. And I will also say just borrowing from my research when I was at the University of Michigan Energy Institute where uh, they had two battery lab labs, you know, one of the things I learned uh, in that study was the innovation that's, that's really embedded in the next gen of batteries. So everybody's thinking about lithium ion batteries. Well, um, already the many manufacturers are feathering in more iron phosphate batteries to eliminate the cobalt for example. But then we have a group of startups and entrepreneurs that are pushing toward commercialization of a solid state battery, which is a function of abundant materials. And it alleviates many of the stresses and strains that may be associated with the lithium ion battery. In other words, Nika, I think there are efforts a lot of a lot of great research, but also getting to the demo, um, you know, stage of development that will um, take us down yet again in terms of that life cycle emissions calculation. So everybody is really driving driving toward that, and I do think we'll see some very positive results. And I'm hoping it's 
know, a lot of US uh, companies will grow up with um, that kind of technology to offer. Everyone driving toward it. I don't know if you did that on purpose, but that was an excellent uh, that was an excellent pun there. So, uh, you know, shout out to, to to greening the transportation electrification sector. So, David, do you have any uh, I guess any thoughts there on on sort of the approaches to the uh, life cycle emissions there as Ellen has laid out? Um, I mean, Ellen is the expert on electric vehicles uh, and vehicles in general for sure. So, I, I will have a hard time adding much beyond that. Uh, but I will say that I mean. We think about life cycle emissions in all of the work that we do, and it is so important um, as you know for all the points that you raised. Um, and I think there's uh, one other gap that we've been thinking a lot about in um, the policy space is around uh, data and tracking of data, measurement of data around um, uh, the emissions across supply chains for all products. Uh, it's not just electric vehicles, but any traded product. Uh, there are emissions associated with you know, each different component along the full supply chain. And in, in many cases, those components will cross borders numerous times, be embedded into larger products. It becomes a huge challenge to track all of that and to account for it accurately. Um, and that's going to be a, a really big uh, policy need going forward is, first of all, coming up with a system for measuring and tracking the data, uh, the uh, embodied carbon data, and then hopefully agreeing globally on a system uh, eventually uh, to do that in a consistent way, and then putting in place policies to deal with that once we have the data. Um, so a lot of work to, to do there. And I think you know, you'll see um, a lot more news these days on a focus in that area. Um, so really exciting space to be working in and to be watching going forward. It's almost as if you're implying that in order to get to the transition, we need a multilateral uh, approach uh, you know, across you know, supporting these technologies, which again is something that I think that the report does a great job of highlighting. Um, so we have about seven minutes left. So I wanna to try to get to at least a couple of questions. Um, so, you know, jokingly, I, I think, you know, we sort of, if you work in the field of economics or an economist, uh, we do most of our work in terms of thinking through studies and, you know, sort of projecting out uh, from pieces of data what we think it means for the future. And that I think the joke that I have found in my work in economics is the minute that you put a study out, uh, there's going to be a thousand people lined up to tell you why that study is wrong. So um, I guess my question to both of you would be, um, while the study, I think, sort of elucidates some important things as it relates to the green energy transition. Where do you think the study has some flaws? And um, you know, where do you think that some, some maybe some further analysis might be needed in order to better inform policymakers about the um, sort of medium and long-term implications of, uh, of the deployment or development of some of these technologies? Great question, Nika. And we recognize that this is the first kind of proverbial shot across the bow in terms of examining the value chain segments. And we have more work to do to make sure that these projections are solid. Number one is the methodology that we relied on used the IEA scenarios. There are three pathway scenarios 
that are updated on a routine basis by IEA. One is the net zero path to 2050. The second is the announced pledges scenario to 2050 that says, hey, let's look at all the company uh, countries and what they have pledged to do, uh, not necessarily what they are doing today, but uh, what they pledge to do. And then the third scenario is basically status quo. Here's where we are. And of course, those scenarios do project then different volumes of these technologies that are produced, so to speak. Um, you know, if you're on a net zero path, you're going to have more volume of hydrogen or more volume of carbon capture than you would if you're on an announced pledges scenario. So one, it, I wouldn't say it's a flaw, but that methodology is underpinning the projections that we have. The second is that the study includes gross market value projections. In other words, this is not a macro model that can identify sectors that are interplaying with each other. I mean, you mentioned transmission. So EV growth is enabled by transmission uh, or electricity generation capacity. Uh, so there is some recognition and embedded in the study that that's an um, important gateway for EV growth. But we also know other sectors will experience job losses and market value loss. So again, we are looking at the projections of these clean techs. We are not examining those sectors that are going to be in a Schumpeter-like uh, um, creative destruction. Um, and then I guess I do want to say, you know, it'd be great to do more integration across the technologies to make sure that we are capturing some of the second order effects. Those would be the three items I'd mention in this uh, for that question that you raised. Sure. Excellent. David, uh, any, uh, I guess, anything to add there about uh, some areas that the, the study might might uh, still have some room for improvement there? Um, I mean, yeah, as, as someone who does sort of critical analysis for my my job, I, I could talk at great length about, you know, how, how to uh, uh, qualify things. Um, and of course, one of the challenges with this work is like, it's impossible to predict the future, right? And any scenarios um, by any any modeling groups, uh, even those esteemed as IEA, are are just going to play out differently in reality. Um, and I think there's a tension here where, uh, for government in the private sector, um, there's really like a one goal is to focus on the areas where there's the greatest economic and climate opportunity from our vantage point today. Uh, but another goal, which sometimes pulls in the opposite direction, is um, we need to really invest in a broad set of solutions so that we have optionality in the face of uncertainty. And um, we're, we don't have a lot of time to make this transition happen and to meet our, our climate goals and temperature targets. So if we um, don't have a diverse set of solutions and place all our bets in, in one area, um, then I think that really puts us at a disadvantage. So, you know, one of our, our focuses at Breakthrough Energy is to really support uh, a broad set of uh, clean technologies that can uh, provide some more insurance that we uh, 
meet our climate goals and can tailor solutions to the different geographies and, and jurisdictions depending on you know what their exact um, barriers or needs are. Certainly, great. Um, all right, so with with one minute left, and and you know, let me first say to the to the audience that have been continuing to add questions uh, to the chat. Thank you so much. I think these questions have truly informed a, a pretty robust discussion here. So. Um, when I, whenever I moderate panel, panels, I like to ask panelists, uh, you know, for, you know, I, I heard someone on, on a podcast say a free electron. So um, if you could leave the, the attendees here with, with one piece of advice around the energy transition uh, in one sentence or less, what would that, uh, you know, piece of advice be? Well, I'll just say, you know, having worked on this study now for over 12 months and also doing the work that I've done for, you know, on EVs and batteries, I'll say, you know, this is a, it's a huge opportunity. And I, I think we've got to get the data and the message out that there's a significant opportunity here and it will be a game changer for um, you know, many Americans in a positive way. So I guess that, that would be one thing to leave, to leave you with. And uh, my free electron uh, would be that uh, to achieve the, the pace and scale um, that we need to, to uh, get to net zero by 2050, we really need to shift away from thinking about technologies as um, an individual thing and really focus on the whole supply chain. Uh, and that's really, uh, I think, the, the core theme of this work. And I hope everyone takes that away. Um, and we're, we're making progress and moving in that direction. So it's very exciting. Excellent. All right, so so we're right at 301. Uh, you know, always wish we could continue these conversations, but I think the great thing is that uh, with the Climate Change Economics and Finance Roundtable, we have opportunities to continue these discussions on an almost monthly basis. So so please be on the lookout, I think, for some of our next webinars coming up. I think Caitlin did a good job of teeing up some of the things we have coming up here at the back end of the year. So uh, let me first say uh, thank you to David and Ellen uh, for your uh, great work in this effort and your insights. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of eConversations with NAEP. We hope you'll join us in New York City for NAEP's certificate course in time series analysis and forecasting, May 22nd through 24th. Participants will learn how to account for the changing world when constructing a regression model, moving beyond traditional least squares to models of co-integration. And in instances when modeling a single variable is not rich enough, participants learn how to adapt traditional vector autoregressions using error correction models. Could you or members of your team benefit from this training? For a limited time, use promo code TSMA2023 at checkout to receive their member early bird rate. That's a savings of up to $300. But hurry, this offer is only available until tomorrow, Friday, April 28th. The NAEP Foundation Economic Measurement Seminar provides a unique opportunity to learn about federal agency data directly from the producers of the data. Pairing the data producer with a data user, the seminar provides a comprehensive picture of the importance and different uses of economic measurement today. If you previously attended, we encourage you to come back for track B sessions, spend some time exploring measurement on hot topics such as consumer sentiment, the energy revolution, housing affordability, manufacturing, wages, consumer spending, and the debt crisis. The seminar will take place July 17th and 18th at the Four Seasons Hotel in Washington, D.C. The early bird deadline is June 14th, 
please visit neve.com slash EMS 2023 for more information and to register.